I'd like to begin this morning with one of Aesop's fables. When first the fox saw the lion, he was terribly frightened and ran away and hid himself in the woods. The next time he saw the lion, the king of the beasts, the fox stopped at a safe distance and watched him pass by. The third time they came near one another, the fox went straight up to the lion and passed the time of day with him. He asked about his family and when he should have the pleasure of seeing him again. Then, turning his tail, the fox parted from the lion without much ceremony. The moral is, familiarity breeds contempt. If I'm not careful, I can be a very lazy Bible reader. Uh, For me, Familiarity with certain passages in Scripture breeds, if not contempt, then certainly, certainly carelessness. Uh, And I'm never more prone to carelessness than when reading Jesus' miracle accounts. Let me explain that, because I wonder if some of you might not fall into the same trap. In Mark's Gospel, in every Gospel, the miracles Jesus performs are never mere demonstrations of raw, miraculous power. All of our Lord's miracles, as he ministers in the power of the Spirit, have significance. They're all silent sermons. They preach to Israel and they preach to us about Jesus' office as the Anointed One. The nearness uh, and the nature of the Kingdom of God, of pushing back Satan's dark dominion. The necessity of repentance and faith and the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. Jesus' miracles always serve to further clarify the ministry and the person of Jesus and our discipleship response to Jesus. Which means the miracle itself, the healing, the exorcism, it's only ever one-third of the story. But that's the part that I'm prone to take away from the account and remember. And, And this is where my carelessness comes in. Because the next time I come across this miracle in my, in my devotions, I think to myself, oh, okay, yeah, I, I, remember, I know how this one ends. Uh, the leper is healed. Uh, the demon is cast out. The dead man is raised to life. On to the next story. But what I've just done is I've decontextualized that miracle. I've abstracted it from the literary context in which it occurs. So I'm thinking to myself, well, this is, this is miracle number seven and number eight of, of 25 altogether. Miracle number seven and number eight. And I, I once talked with, I hope this isn't you, but I once talked with an insufferable music purist who contended that every movement of a symphony must be heard in its proper order, movement one, movement two, movement three, and all in one sitting. So, she would argue, people should never listen to just the third movement of Beethoven's Ninth Symphony on its own. That would be like starting a movie halfway through and then turning it off after 15 minutes. Well, I I think as as far as symphonies and music are concerned, that's going way, way too far. Um, But it's, it's not, though, it's not going too far with our passage this morning. Jesus' two miracles, the healing of the hemorrhaging woman and the raising of Jairus' daughter to life, both accounts must be read and understood together. They're not independent accounts. It's not miracle number seven and number eight, right? They're a literary unit. 
And Mark sets up our passage this morning in a very significant way. Scholars call this a Markan sandwich. And that's just not them trying to be cute. Um, it's actually that PhD scholar, everyone they call this. Mark actually has several Markan sandwiches throughout his gospel. <clears throat> a sandwich is when the evangelist begins a story. In this case, it's Jairus and his sick daughter. So he starts the story off, and then that story is interrupted by another event that sheds light on that first story. In this case, the woman with the hemorrhage. Before then, the first story concludes. That happens a number of times in Mark's Gospel. Uh, when we say we're eating a hand sandwich, to which part of the sandwich are we referring? It's, it's the middle part, right? That's the substance between the two slices of bread. That's the kind of sandwich we're eating. Ham, peanut butter, and jelly. What Mark is feeding us today is a faith sandwich. The middle part of this passage is about the faith possessed by the woman with the hemorrhage. A faith Jesus commends. A faith which, as we read in the Greek text, saves her. And hers is the story that provides the key to understanding the combined stories. Because if we look at this as two independent miracles with no literary connection whatsoever, we'll never pick up on what the Lord is teaching us about the very nature of faith. These two stories are about faith in Jesus. Two kinds of people, two kinds of faith. And and there are few themes more important in the Bible than faith. The Bible says that sinners are saved through faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is faith's object. That means we believe in Jesus. We trust in Jesus. And faith is the means. It's the instrument. You can think of it as being the pipeline. Through which we appropriate all the blessings God has accomplished for his people in Jesus' death and resurrection for sin. So if you're with us here today and you've not placed your faith in the finished crosswork of Jesus Christ, then friend, you need to pay very prayerful attention to this hemorrhaging woman's faith. Uh, The middle slice of Mark's sandwich this morning, because Jesus commends her faith. Hers is a faith which saves. But her faith is also desperate. It's a broken faith. It's not the faith of a strong person. It's the faith of a weak person. A person who's frightened and disgraced. Jairus, on the other hand, he has a faltering faith that needs propping up. This man is living in the extreme of human despair. When we meet him, his 12-year-old daughter is at death's door, and then she dies. Yet Jesus tells them, don't be afraid, just believe. And there we have the great challenge of Christian discipleship, don't we? When circumstances are dire and bleak, when we're buffeted by disappointment after disappointment, the temptation is to disbelieve. The temptation, listen carefully, the temptation is to compromise. The temptation is to make impatient decisions. 
to violate our conscience, to prioritize the idols in our life, to live in fear, to doubt God's wisdom, His goodness, His love, His care, to despise our Heavenly Father's discipline. No, we must trust God. And so Jesus says to us, Mount Pleasant, New City, don't be afraid. Just believe. Let's look at the top slice of this sandwich. Jairus has faith that Jesus can heal his daughter. Mark chapter 5, verse 21. When Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. Then one of the synagogue leaders named Jairus came, and when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet. He pleaded earnestly with him, My little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. So Jesus went with him. All right. This scene takes place immediately after the exorcism of the legion of demons on the east side of the Sea of Galilee. We looked at that last week. After that event, and and after leaving that, that former demoniac behind to stay in Gentile territory to be a witness, a missionary to Jesus, Jesus gets back in his boat and he crosses over to the west side of the Sea of Galilee back into Jewish territory. And, and crowds of people immediately accumulate. Basically, it's like Beatlemania, wherever Jesus goes. Uh, Though never once in Mark's gospel do we read of the crowds repenting and preparing for the coming of the kingdom. Not once. The crowds thinking Jesus is a healer. He's a miracle worker. Later on, some will say that he's a a prophet. Maybe, Maybe even one of the Old Testament prophets who's come back from the dead. Or John the Baptist, come back to life. Maybe that. But the people never perceive who Jesus really is or why he's come. And in this crowd, there's a synagogue leader named Jairus. Jairus has standing in the Jewish community. The leader of a synagogue isn't a professionally trained rabbi or scribe. He's a lay member, but a lay member entrusted by the elders of the community with the general oversight of that local synagogue. And and the orthodoxy of its teaching. He's in charge of that. His responsibilities are are wide-ranging, including uh, building maintenance and security, procuring scrolls for scripture reading, and the arranging of Sabbath worship by designating scripture readers, people to pray, preachers. That's all Jairus' job. So, Jairus is a man who has standing in the Jewish community. And though he's an important man, he approaches Jesus with a, a decided lack of pomp. In fact, he, he falls at Jesus' feet, doesn't he? In a sign of humility, in a sign of desperation. And he does that because he's a loving father with a child at death's door. Now bear in mind, at this point in Jesus' ministry, our Lord has a terrible reputation amongst the religious leaders. And Jairus encounters those religious leaders continually. Right? That's his job. He serves at their pleasure. And in the eyes of the religious leaders, Jesus is a rabbi who consorts with the worst sort of moral scum. He's an habitual Sabbath breaker with no respect for the tradition of the elders. 
who takes on the very prerogatives of God by pronouncing the forgiveness of people's sins. All this was established back in chapter 3. They've been plotting Jesus' death since chapter 3. And, and this is the man the leader of the local synagogue goes to for help? Not a great way to climb the corporate ladder, Jairus. Jairus doesn't care. He's a father, and his little girl is dying. He loves his daughter far more than his job or his reputation, and he has faith that Jesus can help him. Jesus, or Jairus, clearly expects Jesus to do something. So, Jesus puts his public ministry on hold and concerns himself in a very private family affair away from the eyes of the crowd. Verse 24, so Jesus went with him. Because there's not a moment to spare, right? Jesus and Jairus need to hurry over to Jairus' house and, and save the little girl from the jaws of death. But Jesus delays. Jesus does spare a moment. There's a woman in the crowd with a hemorrhage whose desperation is, is quieter but no less urgent. And now we move into the middle substance of our sandwich. This story of the hemorrhaging woman sheds new light on the Jairus narrative. Mark's doing this deliberately and shows us something of biblical faith as the faith of Jairus and the woman are contrasted. That's what Mark's doing. So look at, the, look at verse 24. A large crowd followed and pressed around him. Verse 25. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had. And instead of getting better, she grew worse. I'm sure we've all been in situations where someone's disclosed something of a very private medical nature that's caused us to wince on the inside. You're like, ah, that's too much information. <laughs> and perhaps there's a tendency to think something like that here. We need to get past that. This woman is subject to gynecological hemorrhaging, which in any culture is an abysmal affliction. But in a Jewish context, her medical condition is intolerably shameful. Loved ones, this woman is living a life not far removed from a leper. Now, from our cultural perspective, probably some of the most difficult, alienating chapters in the whole Bible are found in Leviticus chapters 11 through 15. If you've read those chapters, you know what I'm talking about. Those chapters deal with old covenant ceremonial uncleanliness in all of its various forms. In the old covenant... And this isn't the case now in the New Covenant, since the Lord's people are now indwelt by the Holy Spirit. But in the Old Covenant, God physically resided among his people, not in his people. God's special revelatory presence was in the back room of the tabernacle or the temple in the Holy of Holies. And the nation had to be holy. It had to be pure if God's revelatory presence was to continue to dwell in their midst. Because certain things would defile that geographical space and render God's home on earth, his throne room on earth, unclean. 
And so Leviticus 11 starts with various animals and foods considered by God to be unclean. Chapter 12 of Leviticus deals with uncleanliness in childbirth, particularly as it relates to the postnatal flow of blood. And chapters 13 and 14 deal with various skin diseases which render a person unclean. We looked at that a little while back with leprosy. Such people lived outside the camp, right? Away from God's presence. And and the best explanation that I've seen for this comes from Gordon Wenham. He argues that holiness in the book of Leviticus is symbolized by wholeness. W-H-O-L, wholeness. Wholeness is why the animals used in sacrifice had to be perfect. They couldn't have any spots, no blemishes, no deformities whatsoever. And priests serving in the temple also, they had to be without physical defect. If you had a, if you had a club foot, you could not be a priest in the tabernacle. Mixtures are an abomination. Wholeness is what matters, which is why Jews weren't allowed to wear clothing woven of two different types of material. And the covenant people of God must behave in such a way as to express wholeness and integrity in their actions. And and as strange and as, I guess, as heartless as it may sound to us, when a person showed visible signs of a lack of wholeness, as evidenced, say, in a persistent patchy skin condition or a persistent gynecological discharge, they were to be excluded, excluded geographically from the covenant community. They were banished from God's special revelatory presence. God's laws on these matters are a testimony to the importance of purity and holiness in Israel. And it was considered so important to preserve the purity of the tabernacle and the holiness of the nation that individuals, families, might be forced to suffer a great, great deal. Individual concerns weren't allowed to jeopardize the spiritual welfare of the nation. That's your mom who has leprosy? It's too bad. God's abiding presence with his covenant people depended depended on uncleanness, being excluded from their midst. Now, Leviticus 15. I'd like us to turn there in our Bibles, please. This is the third book of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. In in Leviticus 15, that deals with unclean discharges associated with reproduction. So pollutions which usually affect people up to one week. But in verses 25 and following, we read about what must happen if a woman is afflicted with a long-term gynecological discharge. Let's just kind of go back to verse 19 for a minute, Leviticus 15. When a woman has her regular flow of blood, the impurity of her monthly period will last seven days. And anyone who touches her will be unclean till evening. Now verse 25. When a woman has a discharge of blood for many days at a time other than her monthly period, or has a discharge that continues beyond her period, she will be unclean as long as she has the discharge, just as in the days of her period. Any bed she lies on while her discharge continues will be unclean, as is her bed during her monthly period. Anything she sits on will be unclean, as during her period. Anyone who touches them will be unclean. They must wash their clothes and bathe with water, and they will be unclean till evening. Skip down to verse 31. You must keep the Israelites separate from things that make them unclean, so they will not die in their uncleanness 
for defiling my dwelling place which is among them. Serious business. Now, compare that with chapter 17, verse 10 of Leviticus. Just jump ahead, two chapters. Leviticus 17, 10. I will set my face against any Israelite or any foreigner residing among them who eats blood, and I will cut them off from, the, from their people. For the life of a creature is in the blood, and I have given it to you to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. It is the blood that makes atonement for one's life. See, that, that is remarkable. That means blood is the most effective ritual cleanser. We're seeing that here in 1711. The most effective ritual cleanser and the most polluting substance there is when it's the wrong blood shed in the wrong place in the wrong way. That's profound. Animal blood offered in sacrifice under the terms of the Old Covenant cleanses a person from their ritual defilement so that they can live in God's presence without being consumed. It's blood offered in the right place in the right way. But menstrual blood under the terms of the Old Covenant, defiles and pollutes. And this woman with the 12-year gynecological hemorrhage is moving in the crowd towards Jesus through the, the jostling, crushing crowd, and she's ceremonially defiling everyone that she's touching, and she wants to touch Jesus. Verse 27. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak. Because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. Immediately, her bleeding stopped. And she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. What was this woman thinking before she touched our Lord? What was going through her mind? If I just touch his clothes... I will be healed. Well, okay, what's the logic? What's the theology behind that thought? We don't really know. Uh, we see a measure of desperation here, for sure, but, but a real measure of faith, too. This lady could be believing something pretty close to superstition. Jesus is like a magic genie, and if I touch the hem of his garment, I will be healed. Alexander the Great was often mobbed by crowds who ran to him from all sides, some touching his hands, some his knees, some his garments, in the hopes of being baptized with his aura and power. Perhaps she's thinking along something those lines. On the other hand, she may have seen in Jesus something more than just the aura of a ruler. You don't have to turn there, but I'll just read this text. Exodus 29, 35. Maybe she's thinking this. Do for Aaron and his sons everything I have commanded you, taking seven days to ordain them. Sacrifice a bull each day as a sin offering to make atonement. Purify the altar by making atonement for it and anoint it and consecrate it. For seven days make atonement for the altar and consecrate it. Then the altar will be most holy and whatever touches it will be holy. This woman may have seen in Jesus a representative of God who, like the altar of the tabernacle, would render holy those who touch him. But 
Notice the progression here. She hears about Jesus. She comes to Jesus. She touches Jesus. Friend, if you're here today and you're not a believer, if you're not a Christian, if you're not someone who has believed in the good news of what God has accomplished in Jesus' death and resurrection for sin, then I want you to prayerfully consider that. You need to express faith in Jesus the same way this woman expressed her faith in Jesus. You've heard about Jesus. Now you must come to Jesus and touch him with the hand of faith. You must touch him with your sin-defiled hand so that he can make you clean. Because as it stands right now, your unforgiven sin, your, your rebellion against God, it keeps you outside the camp. It defiles you. Like your sin keeps you outside of God's presence. And it will for all of eternity. And even though you're trying hard, real hard, to be a good person, and I don't doubt that you perform all sorts of good deeds, I don't doubt that you're a decent, caring person. Even so, the Bible uses a very earthy and biblically significant expression to describe your righteous deeds, all your good works. In Isaiah 64, 6, our righteous acts, our good deeds performed, performed in hope that they will curry favor with God. They're pictured in that text as a menstrual cloth held up to God. Now, that, that's disgusting imagery in any culture, but in a Jewish context... That's nothing less than absolute defilement. That's our good works. No human being is reconciled to God based on their own goodness or merit. For all of us, all of us, our rebellion, our sin against God has attracted God's just wrath, His anger. God sees all of us as defiled, unclean people. Our sin has made us so. How can God, the Holy Spirit, the third person of the triune God, live within us if we're filled with sin and defilement and unwholeness? With every kind of evil, he finds infinitely repulsive. He cannot. Jesus has to clean us up first. Friends, the blood of Jesus is blood shed in the right place, in the right way. Instead of defiling, the blood of Jesus purifies sinners. His blood washes away the defilement of our moral impurity. God has gone to great lengths to cleanse sinners. He sent his own eternal son to die for us. Here again, this gospel, God's own announcement of good news to a fallen world. He is willing to cleanse all 
who come to Jesus in faith. God is willing to forgive every act of rebellion that we've ever committed against him or ever will commit. He's willing to forgive, but only, only on his terms. And these are the terms. And from this, we cannot deviate one bit. God will only grant the free gift of forgiveness of sin through the death and resurrection of Jesus, which we, guilty, hell-deserving sinners that we are, appropriate through the means of faith. We don't physically touch Jesus. We believe. And God saves us. We believe and God saves us. So, this woman touches Jesus with a very imperfect faith. And what happens? Verse 29. Immediately, her bleeding stopped and she felt in her body that she was freed from suffering. See, immediate healing, instantaneous transformation. Twelve years of shame and frustration and defilement all resolved in a momentary touch of Jesus. And Jesus knows it. Verse 30. At once Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. What a wonderful phrase that is. Just think about that. At once Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and asked, Who touched my clothes? You see the people crowding against you, his disciples answered, and yet you can ask, who touched me? Do you remember uh, what the Lord God asked Adam in the Garden of Eden after he and Eve rebelled against his rightful rule and authority over, him, over them? They, they had a date with the Lord God. They were going to walk with him in the cool of the day in the garden. And when Adam and Eve don't show up, because they're hiding with shame in the bushes... God calls out, where are you? Not that God didn't know, of course. He knows everything. He's omniscient. But God wanted Adam to step forward and face the responsibility. He was calling him on the carpet, as it were. Jesus stops walking and looks around for this woman in the pressing crowd because he's not content to just merely dispatch a miracle. He wants a personal encounter with her. Verse 32, but Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet and trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. And and we know why she was trembling with fear. She shouldn't be out and about. (laughs) She's defiling everyone and everything she meets. And in Luke's account, we read this. In the presence of all the people, she told why she had touched him and how she had been instantly healed. Now, as all of this great stuff is going on, put yourself in poor Jairus' shoes. The man must be going crazy. Come on, come on. My little girl's at death's door. I I was just in the dirt. Begging at your feet, Jesus, who cares who touched you? Oh, oh, it's this woman. 
I know her. This lady's been sick for 12 years. Another 30 minutes isn't going to kill her, but my little girl is about to die. Come on, let's go. I think that's what I'd be doing. Verse 34, he said to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. Or it's the same word in the Greek. It's just as appropriate. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. Christian, look out. Familiarity breeds contempt. But by the Holy Spirit's enabling, look at this very familiar story afresh. Jesus didn't have to stop and get this woman's life story and then pronounce his little benediction, did he? He and Jairus are on important business. This is a matter of life and death. But instead, Jesus slows everything down and makes inquiries as to who touched him. This is so important because, you see, this changes the incident. It changes everything from a mere power encounter into a personal encounter. Jesus makes this personal. Don Carson makes a very telling point. Jesus could have healed this woman. He could have felt the power leave and then merely said a silent prayer of thanks to God as he continued on his way to Jairus' home, right? She wants a miracle. But Jesus wants a meeting. She wants the answer to her problems. But Jesus wants to confront her with respect to her faith. And notice that her faith, however superstitious or poorly informed it may be, is met with compassion, not reproach. Daughter, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. And in light of where the book of Mark takes us in the coming chapters, it's safe to say that this physical healing serves as a window into a larger spiritual healing. A spiritual healing accomplished through Jesus' death and resurrection. When Jesus says, go in peace, in peace, ultimately, he's talking about peace with God. The peace of God that we gain through being in right covenant relationship with him. It isn't spelled out yet. We're only in chapter 5. But the language is filled with anticipation. Because Mark's narrative is rushing towards the cross, isn't it? Jesus' language anticipates that ultimate salvation, that ultimate covenantal peace accomplished on Calvary's hill. Verse 35. While Jesus was still speaking, some people came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader. Your daughter is dead, they said. Why bother the teacher anymore? Now the drama intensifies. The interruption, which proved so profitable to the hemorrhaging woman, has just cost Jairus' daughter her life. If only Jesus hadn't wasted so much time on this lady. Now all hope is lost. Don't bother the teacher anymore. But again, notice the emphasis on faith. Verse 36. Overhearing what they said, Jesus told him, Don't be afraid. Just believe. And Jairus has enough faith and desperation to proceed. Now imagine for a moment that you are in the crowd 
as Jesus says these words. Better yet, imagine you're one of the people who's just delivered this sad news of death. Pretend that's you. You're you're a friend of the family. Jairus, we've come to find you. I'm so sorry. Your daughter is dead. Your little girl is dead. Come, let's go home. Your wife and family need you, Jairus. Don't bother the teacher anymore. Let's go home. And then Jesus pipes up. Don't be afraid, Jairus. Just believe and she'll be healed. How would you respond? What might you say in that moment if you were Jairus' friend? Right? A friend recently come from the deathbed of this little girl you know personally. The mournful wails of her grief-stricken mother, Jairus' wife, still ringing in your ears. Wouldn't you be angry? I would. And in that moment, I'd want to protect my friend's vulnerable emotions. He could be so easily manipulated right now. What's wrong with you, Jesus? Why would you say that? Just believe and she'll be healed. Why do you want to torment the poor man like that? His daughter is dead. It's too late. Jairus, my friend, send the teacher home. Don't let this man come into your house and attempt to raise your daughter to life. Good grief. Don't put your poor wife through that. She's already beside herself. Jairus, you need to come and prepare for your daughter's burial. That's what happens next. Loved ones, there will be times in life when we find ourselves in Jairus' situation. Times when circumstances become tragic and dire and Satan will tempt us to disbelieve God's goodness. We've been singing about these themes this morning, deliberately. And in those moments... The evil one won't come to you and tempt you to disbelieve the doctrine of the Trinity or the resurrection of Jesus. The devil is far too smart for that. He'll get you to doubt God's goodness in the face of calamity. That is his tried and tested method. It's been working for centuries. Doubting God's goodness when you lose your job or your home. When a loved one dies or is diagnosed with a fatal or horrendous disease. When you find yourself old and alone and losing your health or your faculties. One day, Christian, you will find yourself in great pain in a hospital bed or at the graveside of your dead child or in a marriage that's cruel and loveless and the powers of darkness will whisper in your ear your God is not good he is not sufficient your God is not loving he is cruel he is unkind there will be times Christian When you will need to trust God in the face of devastating grief, disappointment, suffering, loss. Perhaps 
you're going through a season like that right now. This is one of the great challenges of Christian discipleship. When circumstances in life are dire and bleak, when we're buffeted by disappointment after disappointment, and we're tempted to disbelieve, we're tempted to compromise, to make impatient decisions, to violate our conscience, to prioritize the idols in our life, to live in fear, to doubt God's wisdom, His goodness, His love, and His care, to despise our Heavenly Father's discipline. In that moment, we must trust God. We need to hear Jesus' words to Jairus. Don't be afraid. Just believe. Jairus has a faltering faith that needs to be propped up. Verse 37. He did not let anyone follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. When they came to the home of the synagogue leader, Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. He went in and said to them, Why all this commotion and wailing? The child is not dead but asleep. But they laughed at him. After he put them all out, he took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him and went in where the child was. He took her by the hand and said to her in Aramaic, Talithakum, which means little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately, the girl stood up and began to walk around. She was 12 years old. At this, they were completely astonished. He gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this and told them to give her something to eat. Christian, take time to consider this old, familiar story afresh. Notice the similarities. Both stories have females at their center, females healed by the touch of Jesus. Both the woman's illness and the girl's age are given as 12 years. Both stories bring Jesus into contact with uncleanness, Contact with a menstruating woman and with a corpse were both defiling under the law of Moses. Two people show faith in these narratives, Jairus and the woman with the hemorrhage. And as we contrast and compare Jairus and the hemorrhaging woman, we see they are a very different, they're very different types of people who also have different kinds of faith. Jairus is named. You notice that? He, he's an important man. We don't know the woman's name. She's a nobody. Jairus is a man of standing. She's an unclean castaway living in shame. Jairus is appealing for another. She's appealing for herself. Jairus approaches Jesus with respect from the front. She sneaks up from behind. Jairus has a desperate yet bold persistence. The woman is desperate but Frightened and ashamed. She lacks confidence. Yet at the end of the day, 
She has faith that Jesus commends. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. And that contrast gives us insight into what faith is all about. This woman has no name, no standing, no security. She is ashamed of her defilement. She does not approach Jesus boldly, but with fear. Friend, this is the very picture of the penitent, humble sinner coming to Jesus for cleansing. If you're not a Christian, come as you are, right now, still besmirched in sin's defilement. Come to Jesus. You've heard about Jesus. Now come to him and touch him with your sin-stained hand. And you will be immediately cleansed of your sin. Perhaps you have deep-dyed sins that no one knows about. We never told a soul. Perhaps you've done some really shameful, wicked, disgusting things in your lifetime. And now you're asking yourself, can I trust Christ? Will he accept me? Is this good news for me too, or only for other people? I want to tell you that if a broken, disgraced, fearful, frightened woman has her faith commended by Jesus, then you are welcome to trust Christ too. The faith that's commended here is faith which is not only desperate, but broken. It's not the faith of the strong, but the faith of the weak. It's the faith of the frightened and the disgraced. And this is all bound up with the object of the sinner's saving faith, Jesus himself. Jesus came as a doctor for the sick. He's the strong coming for the weak. And he's not satisfied with just transferring raw power from himself to you. He wants a personal relationship with you. God's own Messiah, God's own agent in creation, the King of the universe, he wants to know you. He wants to forgive you. He wants to empower you, even though you're broken, bruised, desperate, and ashamed. So come to him today. Believe the good news of what God has accomplished in Jesus' death and resurrection, and leave this meeting today knowing knowing the forgiveness of your sins and the covenantal peace of God. You can hear these words of Jesus spoken to a guilty sinner like you this very hour. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Amen.